Knockback is brought to you by thousands of supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. If you want to show your support for Knockback, as well as CLS's PlayStation podcast Sacred Symbols, the eclectic interview series Fireside Chats, and the YouTube gaming series SideQuest, please consider going to Patreon and pledging for a monthly amount that makes the most sense for you. Your Patreon support doesn't only ensure that CLS continues to produce the content you love, like Knockback, but you can get cool perks, too, depending on your level of support. You can get early access to each episode of Fireside Chats, Sacred Symbols, and Knockback, totally ad-free. You can vote for show topics and provide feedback to be read on air. You can listen to exclusive podcasts only available to patrons, and much more. Your support is essential if Colin's Last Stand is to continue well into the future, so please consider showing some love. Again, that's patreon.com slash Stand. Thank you for your kindness, generosity, and support. Without you, CLS wouldn't exist. But enough of that. On to the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by my distant brother, Dagan Moriarty. Now that made it sound like you're my distant brother, but you're geographically distant. Right, exactly. We are across the expanse of the United States right now as we record this. Indeed. It is. I think this is episode 71. It's rare we can actually say that because we are... We're going to record four episodes remotely because we're just four short. We're not getting together until the middle of July. And rather than ever miss a week, which we will never do unless one of us is dead. There you go. We thought we, were, we, thought we would record uh, remotely. So maybe we've only even done not other then. One. Maybe we, even if we were dead, we would still make it because we, we have that sort of power, I feel like. Right. From beyond the grave, as it were. Force ghost yeah. type thing. Indeed. That makes sense. Indeed. So, Dagan, I'm calling this wave... 8.5, if that suits you. I love that. I, you said that in an email. I thought that was so appropriate. Yeah. So these, you know, this is going to be a, a middle wave. And again, episode 53 was the only one I think that we recorded remotely. So we've done 69 of 70 episodes so far in person. We'll add four more to the not in person list. And then we will get back together for 10 more episodes, which we're going to reveal very shortly. We've already figured out what they are. Yes. So indeed. we know. We know, but you don't know shit. No. Out there. You don't know goddamn thing. No, nothing. <laughs> now, Dagan, before we get started, I wanted to know how you want because we didn't really talk too deeply. I wanted to kind of do it live. Yeah. About should we play? Do we have a game that we want to play? Do you have anything that you want to play before we get into the topic at hand? I because do. typically here on uh, on Knockback, we we like to play a little something in the beginning. And, you know, so tell me about what what, what you want to do here. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Kyle. So so I have a laundry list of possible opening and closing segments for wave nine of knockback. But what I think I'm going to do is for these little sort of in between quote unquote, or 8.5 wave 8.5 episodes that we're going to record remotely. I'm going to do something a little different for at least the opening segment. And for the closing segment, I'll leave that as a surprise. I won't tell you guys what that is yet until we, until we go out, but I have a closing segment and some other surprises at the end. But for the opening segment this time, Kyle, I think I may only do this a couple of times, not for Wave 9 proper, but just for Wave 8.5. I have a little a little segment I'm calling, well, you know what? I think I'm going to call it, Do You Feel Lucky, Punk? Whoa, and this is what right. it is. Now, this is what it is, okay. Kyle. It's a silly little thing, but I thought it might be kind of fun to do on a podcast. Now, I don't know if I've ever spoken to you about this. I'm kind of fascinated with the idea of luck. I'm actually really kind of taken and fascinated by it because luck is a weird thing. You know, what is it? 
is it just a you know purely a matter of chance is it some sort of some sort of latent power that we all have that's kind of this indescribable thing are we born with it you know it kind of ebbs and flows sometimes we feel lucky sometimes we feel unlucky i'm really fascinated with the idea of luck so what i thought i would do is i'm going to test your luck call in a couple of different Whoa. ways yeah a couple all of different right. ways so not to be confused of course with the 80s smash hit game show press your luck not you're gonna no. be testing my luck instead no okay. whammies understood no whammies all right stop stop no what i'm gonna <laughs> do is i have four different things it's kind of a silly little thing i have four different things that i'm gonna test your luck now of course you kyle and you guys out there the listeners you're gonna have to take my word for it because you can't see anything this is an audio podcast there's no visual aspect to the show so you're just gonna have to take my word for it so what i have here kyle i have a deck of cards I have, I'm going to shuffle them so you know that they're here. I will, okay. I will play with them. Here they are. Okay. Got a deck of cards. I got that. a coin. Okay. I got a nickel. I have wow. a okay. set of dice. And I, have, and I have a magic eight ball. Okay. Wow. Yeah. This is thorough. This so is thorough. So what I'm going to do okay. is I'm just going to measure your luck. And, and we'll do it. It's four different tests or four or five different tests. I guess we'll keep it to four different tests. So we'll see what percentage of lucky you are today. Now, let me I, ask I think you. this is this is a funny idea, Dig, and I like this. Okay, you like good. this? Okay, I'm, cool. I'm glad. I'm really glad, actually. So because I wasn't sure about it because, again, because similar to the segment we did last time in or two times ago in um, what did we call it? Win, lose or draw. Win, lose and draw. When, right, right. Right. It was sort of a Pictionary type thing. I wasn't sure because, again, the visual aspect of it is kind of missing, but it might be fun to give it. A, we'll give it a shot. We'll see how it goes. That sounds great. By the way, Dig, yes. real quick about the win, lose and draw. I went out to dinner with Gio Corsi, head of Sony second party while he was in the Los Angeles at E3. Let me know that he's still waiting on his uh, on the image <laughs> that he won. Gio, it is in the mail. It. it you know what? That's probably not true. It's probably not in the it's mail. Not in, it's not in the mail. By the time it's not in the mail. It's not in the mail. It's definitely not in the mail. We have to mail those out. Not just to Gio, who I remember. I remember the one he won as well. No, I'm looking at them right now. They're under my Kojima Productions swag box over there. I have them all set up. I got all the addresses from Kyle. He gave me all the addresses. We synced them up to make sure the right winner went with the right drawing. Signed drawing by Colin. Uh, I, we should reiterate. But we will be sending those out. And I'm sorry for sleeping on that. I'll blame Colin, even though it wasn't his fault. Yeah, no, it's it's totally not my fault, but you can blame me anyway. And, you know, the, it was funny because he brought up. He's like, hey, I didn't get what you said. You asked me for my address a while ago. And when I had we were at dinner and I, what I had originally thought, Dig, was he was talking about that. I must have text messaged him about the 50th episode Sacred Symbols thing because he's a listener of Sacred Symbols. OK, so I was like, oh, yeah, I'll send you that in the mail. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then it wasn't until like the next day that I had this random revelation that he was talking about win lose and draw the win which lose, was and a draw pretty drawing a pretty obscure pull from one geo Corsi of sony Ve so now Dagan, yes let's begin okay so do you feel lucky punk now kyle i have to ask you do you, how do you feel how does your luck feel right now how does it feel today how do you how are you feeling luck wise i'm not feeling great no no, no i'm not no i'm not i don't feel like my luck is in is in good shape right now, but I'm hoping for the best. You know, I don't know. I mean, what I'm going to assume is that it'll probably be pretty equal the all the times we do it. Do you, don't you assume? 
Don't you assume that that has to be true? In other words, it's going to be you're always going to have the same luck no matter how many times we do this game. Well, I guess you can't say no matter how many times. I guess if we did it enough. Yeah. It would all even out. Right. But I guess that's not really what luck's all about either. So good point. hmm. That's a good point. Right. Because you kind of need it when you need it. It's got to kind of be on call at that at the moment you need it. Right. Exactly. Like, uh, you know. I've been watching HBO on HBO The Pacific, which I never watched. Okay. Until I never got through it all the way for some reason. I never watched it. And these, either. by the way, really harrowing fucking show. Oh, it's gotta be. I gotta say. Oh, it's just it's just it's just a horrifying show. But I, I was thinking, you know, ninety nine out of a hundred times the bullets whirling by are gonna miss you anyway. It's that one time the bullet was gonna hit you that it missed you because you moved or something. Right. That's when you needed the luck. You know like, what I mean? Absolutely. So, That's a perfect way of saying it. So I don't mean to be so philosophical with you, but no, I like it. I like. I mean, luck you. is a really, really interesting thing. That's why I really wanted to do this. I, I was thinking so much about luck. I think about. I think it's one of those things. You'll know what I'm talking about, Kyle. It's one of those things where I think about it a lot, but I don't talk about it a lot. I don't articulate it. So I was thinking about like, wow, I'm really fascinated with luck. I think about it a lot. It comes up probably, you know, for me several times a week, thinking about just luck and how it works and who has it and who doesn't and when we have it. So we're gonna test your luck. And see how it goes tonight. It's very simple tests. I mean, I'm excited about that, Dig. I'm really excited about that. And so, Dig, before I get even into this any further, I wonder, is there a specific order that you're going to present them to me? In? No, or is it going to be like a random order? I hadn't thought of it. I, I thought I would do the, ma- the Magic 8 Balls kind of funny. So I was going to do that one last. But I was thinking about doing the flip a coin first because that's really simple. Well, that's one of the four of our tests. So you know what, Kyle? I'm going to let you call it heads or tails. I'm going to flip this nickel. Okay. And you call it in the air. Well, I'll tell you when to call it. You call it now. Tails. Okay. Flip it. It is heads. It mm. is heads. Okay. Not See, not, not too lucky. And that's the <laughs> easiest one to get. Well, in a way, it's kind of the hardest one. You'll see what I'm talking about. Okay. Okay. Hit me up. All right, All right, now I got a pair of dice. I thought it might be kind of nice for you just to, since you're not, you don't have, now this is another weird thing. You're not here in the room with me. So I have to do these for you. I have to do the, I have to roll the dice for you. So what I'm going to let you do is I'm going to let you call the dice. Okay. What I thought you could do is what it might be easier. I'm just going to roll one dice, one die. Okay. And then you one call die. the number that's going to come up. So you have the one in six shot. Okay. Okay. That's All perfect. Right. Okay. All right, Kyle, call it what it's going to be, and I'm going to let it go. Parcheesi style. All right. So my call, I'm calling it now. Call it now. I can, I can, I'm going to say it's going to be a five. Okay. I'm rolling it. I'm cu- I got a cup in my hand. It's going really quick. Colin says five. Roll it. And it is a two. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Not even an odd number, my friend. No, I'm, I'm pretty much I couldn't be almost any further off, actually. Now, let me give you almost. let me give you I have a whole deck of cards here. So I thought what we do is and I didn't have time to put these in order. Maybe next time I'll try something a little different with the cards. But for now, we have a complete deck of cards. I got them all shuffled. I let Helene shuffle them for me actually earlier because I'm not a very good shuffler. I have no card skills. No, I have no card skills whatsoever. I wasn't a card shark growing up like you and your friends playing yeah. poker around the table. <laughs> We have to tell those stories. 
Oh, Maybe dude. those stories will come up when we're talking about barbecues in the, one of the next episodes. Because that's a great idea. I was playing poker at a very young age. Oh my god, it was so. hilarious. I wish we had. I wish we had actually. Pic- we, there must be pictures floating around of that somewhere. There could be. Yeah, there could. There could be. I must have been no older than like six. You got. You guys were <laughs> hilarious. It was so funny. <laughs> so what we'll do is this. Huh? I have a whole. I have okay. a whole thing of cards here. I'm gonna take. I'm just gonna put a couple of cards aside here. I'm just going to take a variety of all the suits. Okay. I'm not paying attention. A, to menag- a menagerie. A menagerie, <laughs> if you will, of suits. <laughs> I'm going to take a dozen cards and I'm going to make, you know, an equalish amount of suits. Okay. I'm not, again, I'm not paying attention to the value of the card, just the suit. Okay. I got a good, I got a dozen and it's a good mix. Okay. So, Kyle, I am going to let you pick how far down you want. You want the card to pick, and you p- tell me if it's going to be a club, a spade, a heart, or a diamond, okay? Okay. And I have cards 1 through 12, so you could tell me 1 through 12 which card you want it to be, and I'll go that far down and take that card. You tell me what you think that one is. Okay. All right. All right. I want you to go 4 down. 4 down. Okay. I got it. I'm not looking at it yet, but I got it. Okay. And what do you think it is? That thing's a diamond. That's a diamond, he says. Okay. I'm flipping it. Here we go. You were close. It's a heart. <laughs> it's a three of hearts. That's actually the closest I've been because at least it's it's it shares a color. There you go. You know? You're not you you weren't too far off. You weren't too far off. Now, Kyle, I also should say you could use this as a barometer. I was trying to convince you recently. We were talking over text to go to relax yourself and take a trip with Aaron to Vegas because you guys really enjoy spending time there. You go have a, have a nice time, sit by the pool, you know. Have a drink, have a cocktail, take in a show, but maybe don't go if things are looking the way they're looking right now. I, that's the best advice you've ever given me, probably. <laughs> you know, Magic Eight Ball. Here we go. You hear it? Magic Eight Ball. Now, how am I gonna do? How am I gonna do the Magic Eight Ball? Because the Magic Eight Ball demands it to be an inquiry, doesn't it? Yeah. So I'm just gonna ask Magic Eight Ball if you are lucky tonight, and it's oh, gonna okay. tell me the answer. Okay, so you don't really have the magic eight ball is just sort of gelling with you right now. It's getting your essence. It's kind of feeling you out, but you really have no control over this one. See, this is very Calvinist. You understand? Yeah, this is. Yeah, this is. Actually, let me give you one more shot, Kyle. Besides the magic eight ball, we'll use the magic eight ball as sort of the cherry on top. Let's not even use let's let's use that for last for the last 25 percent of your luck, sort of your luck test here. Let me just do the very simple. I'm thinking of a number from one okay. to ten. Okay. Okay. I'm gonna okay. make it even a little smaller. I'm gonna make it one to eight. One to eight. No, you okay. know what? Should I make it even smaller than that? Because we already did the die, and the die was one out of six. Let me make it a one out of four chance. Okay. One out of four chance. I'm gonna wow, go one out of four. Really? Three. Okay. All right. So okay. I'm thinking of a number right. from one to four. You tell me what it is, and you can tell me whenever you're ready. The number is four. The number is actually two. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying. I'm trying for you here. That was, you know what that reminded me a lot of, Dave? You have to pull way back the audience here. But when we did the G.I. Joe knockback, we told the story about how I would always pull out like a bad guy at the end so I wouldn't lose. Yes. This was like the exact, this was like the nice version of that. You know, where like you were trying to pull. This was the inverse of that. So instead of me pulling out like the Mickey Mouse stuffed animal or the lamp that would come and attack your men because I was out of guys, 
You actually <laughs> tried to help me out. You sent me a you sent me a lifeline. I did. I did. It's a lifeline of luck. But you know what? We're gonna listen. We're gonna record another one tomorrow night, and this could be, you. This could totally the flip. The script could totally be flipped, and your luck could be completely changed tomorrow, twenty four hours from now. So we'll see how it goes. You know who else would throw me a lifeline? Shipwreck. Yes, he, he would, would also throw me a lifeline. Yes, he would. Or Cutter. Cutter as well. My two. Or Shipwreck might, might throw me a <laughs> Shipwreck might, might throw me a little something else and pretend it was a lifeline. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Well done, Shipwreck. Holy moly. Shipwreck humor. I love G.I. Joe it. shipwreck humor. I love it. There's no way there's no better way to kick off this wave eight point five. All right, Magic Eight Ball. Does is Colin lucky? Actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you ask it a different question. I'm gonna make it a little a little prophecy here. Will Colin be luckier Whoa. tomorrow night? Okay, Magic Eight Ball. What do you say? It says you may rely on it. Wow. All right. So that's that bodes well for you. I'm happy about this. All right, Magic Eight Ball. I'm happy Ball. about this. I'm leaving. All right, all my little luck props. I'm gonna put aside for tomorrow night so we have them handy. And I'm very sorry that <laughs> poor cop. <laughs> it didn't go it's not looking well too tonight, good, but it's cool. not looking too good tonight. But <laughs> my luck, the magic eight ball. Now, because my luck was so bad, the magic eight ball could be lying. To the magic me eight as ball well. could be lying. But you know what? Also, don't feel too bad because, like we said earlier, a little bit, we intimated. A lot of this has to do with me. Maybe this isn't all your luck. Maybe it's my luck too, since I have such a big hand in how this goes. I'm rolling the dice. I'm picking the card. I'm right. shuffling the cards. I'm flipping the That's coin. Fair. It's not you doing it. Now, when you're in That's person, fair. let's see how it goes. When you're here in Philly with me, right? We will. We we, we should just open up a whole casino when we're there and just get all sorts of things, <laughs> sorts of games going. Hey, by the way, f- fun fact. Fun fact. I've never won. I, blackjack is like I love blackjack. Okay. And. Aaron has specifically really turned me on to it in Vegas. I don't play high stakes. I play like 10 to $20 a hand. Okay. But I have never, ever walked away from a blackjack table with any money. So there's, there's your little the, nothing. No, wow. Never. No, I go. I never sit down with more than a few hundred bucks, but I've never walked away with one cent. Like literally, I've, I always bottom out. <laughs> <laughs> Last time I was up a lot, too, and I still fucked it up. So. Oh, wow. How, see, I. I'm too weird with that. Like if I was up, like I played with Helene once and she was up like a hundred and she walked with a hundred, like that type of thing. I think I'd do the same yeah. thing, you know, like I would just, I would just be like, all right, that's a hundred bucks. Like, let's go. Like, you know, but that's no fun. The reality is dig is like, it, like, cause I, you know, I play at tables where you can play it, whatever hand you want. Some people play way more. Right. And you can't really. The, you sit. I, I like just being in that middle spot where it's like I'm just winning and losing little bits of money, and I'm just drinking for free and like entertaining myself. Yeah, that's but like, fun. People, you have to bet a lot of money to really win, you know. And people, I had a I had a drunk ass dude come by once with a whole tray full of chips by the table, literally bombed out, put his chips down, played them all in one hand, and blackjack won, and then just walked away. Wow, with twice as many. <laughs> Like that's that was thousands of dollars that he bet. Wow. But it worked out. Dude, it was awesome. It was legend. Like that was one of the legendary things I'd ever seen in a a casino. That's huge. That's so cool. Yeah, that's really cool. Speaking of casinos. Yeah. Today's topic is Metroid. (laughs) Metroid. (laughs) Metroid 2 and Super Metroid. Now, this is a topic that we've been bouncing around actually internally for a while. We have. And 
I've been wary of doing it until I really had the chance to like sit down and not only play, but really watch some gameplay specifically for Metroid 2, which is really quite inaccessible today. Yeah. Unfortunately, unless you have a Game Boy hardware, it is on 3DS, I think, as well. So I just wanted to make sure to be, you know, current on everything because it was a long time since I'd seen that game. So I sat down finally in you know preparation for this because I already had all my notes from when we were going to do it last time. OK. And or even two times ago, I think. And yeah, I think we were actually going to do this in wave seven. And then yeah, we actually just yeah punted. you're right. You're right about that. Yeah. And so I had all my notes and all I needed to do was sit down and watch uh, some Metroid 2 footage and and read about it. And so I did. And so we're ready to go. We have some questions, comments, concerns. And uh, what is it? Questions, comments, concerns, thoughts and ideas from the audience. Jesus Christ. So I'm a little <laughs> bit off my game. I'm not. I, I like the way this is going, but I also prefer to see you. I, I, I'm actually looking at my graduation picture from Northeastern and I'm just staring at you right now so that I can pretend you're. Oh, uh, you're looking right at me. You're wearing glasses in it. And uh, that's an that's an old Dagan. That it's, is. A, it's a younger Dagan, but it's an it's an old Dagan. <laughs> but Dagan, Metroid, Super Metroid, and Metroid Two: Return of Samus. We wanted to do something on this. I'm really excited to talk to you about it because these games have this really rarefied kind of, I don't know, like this 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 almost rarefied mystical quality to them. Yeah. Because they're they're these. It's not like something really ridiculous from early in NES's life cycle, like balloon fight that never came back. And it's not something like Kid Icarus that kind of had this hardcore fan base and also kind of continued and actually came back later as well. But it's this it's this really influential early, really ruthlessly difficult game on on the NES and the Famicom disk system. Yes. And I really just want to talk to you about like what your memories of are, you know, of our you know, what your memories of Metroid are because we don't really talk about it very much like this isn't a game that comes up for you and I No, this no, isn't a doesn't. game that that really is relevant to us in in a major way So I'm excited to, to hear your thoughts on it. I'm excited to talk to you about it uh, About it with you Kyle and I'm excited to hear what the uh, what our listeners have to say as well You know Metroid is a weird one Metroid is a really strange one because it has almost like this weird balance of mystique and popularity you know, it's sort of everybody knows it, but it also sort of maintains a little bit of an element of, you know, mystique and sort of, you know, like you said, it's it's a it's it has a special it's special. It's not oversaturated like a Mar- like a Mario. You know, it's a very it's a very special IP. And over its, you know, over its lifespan beyond the three games we're going to talk to, you know, today, but especially these three, you know, it has a very interesting sort of a very interesting life and there's there's a lot that you could say about it. So I'm excited to have this conversation. Yeah, absolutely, dude. So Metroid, the original Metroid came out in 1986 in Japan and then it came out in 1987 in North America. And by 1988, it was basically out globally in Europe, et cetera, and so on. It was developed by R&D one, the one of the famous internal dev teams of early Nintendo. And it was a Famicom disk system game, like I said earlier on. So that's an interesting kind of thing as well. And for me, Metroid, I don't know. I feel like it doesn't get the credit it deserves in a lot of ways. Yeah. Because we look at Super Metroid, which we're obviously going to talk about later. And we also obviously look at Symphony of the Night as these two iconic 90s Metroidvania style games. That's where the name comes from is those two specific games. Sure. But it really began with 1986's Metroid. And what I really love about it the most, Dagan, and I wrote this down in my notes here in kind of like big letters as I was going through my notes after the fact when I was reading them actually just a couple of days ago is that 
there's nothing like this game anymore from an imaginative point of view where you really couldn't reasonably get through Metroid without not necessarily some help, but some help from yourself, whether you're keeping notes or drawing maps on graph paper or whatever the case might be. This is an open world side scrolling game with things to find and lots of backtracking and secrets. And it comes from the pre-internet era. I think that's what makes it so fascinating and why I want to encourage people to play it so much, especially playing it blind is because there is no map in the game. Right. There are no there is no inventory screen. In fact, it has a really elegant UI. And so I'm wondering what you think of all of that, because you were older at this time. And I wonder if this was one of the games that because I remember people used to do this with Deadly Towers and all these other shitty games, too. (laughs) But Metroid obviously was one of these special games. So I'm curious if that kind of resonates with you, like that specific aspect of it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the big components. Probably that's a good probably third of the sort of the sum of all its parts of why this game was so special to me. And like you said, I was probably 16 when I first started. I was 15. I was at least 15, but I was probably 16 when I first started playing this game. I remember my friend Joey in Brookhaven, my friend Joey Stefani up the block, a good friend of mine who I skateboarded with and stuff. He owned this game for the NES. And again, like, you know, we sort of had all our friends growing up. We had to pool our resources, right? We all had a few games, you know, a handful of games. And then we borrowed and sort of bartered and, you know, you know, tried to, you know, besides renting things from the video store, but we sort of bartered amongst ourselves to, you know, to kind of complete our libraries or play as much as we could, because we were only going to get, you know, we were all only going to get five or six games or whatever it was, birthdays and Christmas, that whole thing. So Joey owned Metroid and that's where I first played it. And we sort of played it as a group, you know, whether we were just resting from skateboarding, it was a hot day. We went inside Joey's house and messed around with Metroid. And it instantly, besides seeing it in Nintendo Power, I guess, as well, which we'll talk about, but just seeing it for the first time and realizing that it was a really special game, not only in its sort of non-handholding, very cryptic gameplay, like Colin said, no maps, no help, there's no NPCs, there's no shops, there's nothing. Not only is there that very cryptic gameplay mechanic where you really do have to try to figure it out, but it's also very atmospheric and very... You know, it it imparts a very lonely tone again because there's no other characters in the game. There's no there's no shopkeepers. There's no innkeepers. There's no there's no NPCs. There's nothing. It's just your main character that you're playing, who we'll talk about, of course, and the enemies. So it's a very you know, and you're the it's very atmospheric, very dark. You know, has a very dark tone, very foreboding. It's sort of frightening, and it doesn't hold your hand. And now. Kyle, I should say there were cryptic games before Metroid. You know, you think about going hailing back for those of us who are old enough, going back to games like E.T. on Atari 2600 and games like Adventure and some NES titles that came, you know, around the time of Metroid. But Metroid was really the, the harbinger of the, you know, of the cryptic, you know, the quote unquote cryptic game. We had games a little later on like Rygar and Blaster Master and Simon's Quest which we've talked about and Faxanadu and stuff like that. But we so Metroid was the first one of the 8-bit era that was sort of like, here's this game. It's very different. And also you kind of got to juxtapose it in the environment of what else was out during that time, especially for the NES, which was obviously the most 
popular game system of that era, you had like the Nintendo black box games, which were very simple, oftentimes arcadey games, Donkey Kong and Popeye and Kung Fu and Balloon Fight and all that kind of stuff. And then any other kind of games like Mario, much more cartoony, much more colorful, upbeat, even even set against games like Zelda, which were much more colorful. The first Zelda game, Metroid really stood out as something really much darker. This was a very, you know, I always think of the word dark. It always sort of sounds like a hackneyed and sort of trite way to describe something because it's such a, you know, that's sort of the first word that falls off our lips when we talk about something like this. But it was, you know, the tone was very, very different. It stood out from everything else of that time. And a big part of that was also not only the the gameplay and the graphics, but also the music which really set off a foreboding tone. So that's my earliest, you know, that's my earliest memories of Metroid. And also I should say for myself, very much like Zelda, one of those early 8-bit games as I got a little older into my teens that really captured my imagination and really um, sort of captured my creativity. I would sit there, very similar to the first Zelda game, I would sit there with the instruction book at night, which I bar, you know, I would borrow from my friend and, you know, sort of draw from the instruction book. And, you know, the whole world and the whole the whole setting and the whole environment and the whole game really captured my imagination and made me want to think about it even when I wasn't playing it. Zelda and Metroid were the first, and maybe Kid Icarus as well, which we'll have the opportunity to talk about at some point. Those three games were really the first games that really captured my imagination as a young teenager. And maybe you're even responsible for, you know, sort of pushing me in the direction of becoming an animator and stuff like that. You know, the instruction art the instruction booklet art and all that kind of stuff. So those are my very earliest memories of the first NES Metroid. Really special game. I agree with you. It's in thinking back to my youngest years, because I was born just a few years before this game came out. Right. That, you know, it was one of my first exposures, if not really the first cognizant exposure that I probably had to science fiction as well. And it's not something that I really thought about until I was older. Because obviously my life was, my childhood anyway, was dominated by Star Wars. But actually I was exposed to Metroid probably earlier than Star Wars. And that's this idea of space travel and planets and this armored robot looking protagonist named Samus, of course, who we'll talk about shortly. And so I really look at it from that perspective, too, and wonder if it set some seed in my mind, embryonically anyway, that I would one day come to love this genre of fiction as much as I do today and actually indeed just love space. And I wonder if, if that was something, if that, if there was anything there when I was a kid or if that's just overthinking it, you know, cause Metroid was, a, was a pretty prominent game in my childhood. Cause it was like you said, one of the few games there were, we didn't know at the time that there were 800 NES games, right? We had whatever the, well, we kind of had an idea that there were a ton of them from Nintendo Power and the rankings and all that that they would always put in the magazine. But sure. we had access, like you said, to what we had access to. So Metroid was not only a game that I had early access to. It's a game that I went back to over and over again because that's what you did back then. And I think that that's what kids still do today, too. So Absolutely. from that like thematic perspective, I think that there's a lot to love about Metroid and that, and that sci-fi. Now, People don't look at Star Wars as sci-fi. What, what, where were you on sci-fi in the mid to late '80s? Like, where did you stand on all of that outside of Star Wars? I love was that, talking because you're talking it about the story. Well, because you're talking about the storytelling. Yeah, but I wonder if there is more, more to it than that for you as well. If that was just something, because a lot of the anime that you liked was also sci-fi. Definitely, too. 
Yeah, very good point, Kyle. I love talking about it in in the sense of sci-fi because what's really interesting to me that I just thought of is that this, you know, what I was old enough to know as a 15 or 16-year-old that this game, which of course we all know that if we know Metroid, that was heavily influenced by the Alien series, by Alien, Aliens, but certainly Alien, which came before it. It was very inspired by Alien and the art of H.R. Geiger and all that kind of stuff. So... It's very interesting to me that, you know, I already knew that as a 15 or 16 year old. It's very obvious where the influence of this game is coming from tonally, in the artwork, you know, and sort of that sci-fi horrific, you know, aspect of the of the monsters who are, you know, the gruesome monsters and all that kind of stuff. But this game came for you, Kyle, before you knew of those films, which is very interesting to me. You know, before you knew Alien and Aliens, you knew Metroid. Um, but the sci-fi aspect I think was really, really powerful for me because you had Samus in her, in her suit and you had, you know, you had that whole sci-fi aspect of the, you know, she's an intergalactic bounty hunter and she's taking on this, you know, this vile, you know, alien enemy. It's, it really went hand in hand. Like, like you said, and again, like as we talk more about Samus and her identity and all that kind of stuff, it really went along. It really dovetailed very heavily with sci-fi, but especially anime. You know, it, very, it felt very, very much in step with all of the 80s anime, which came just a little bit. It was out. It was starting to come out at that point. But for me, it came probably... I probably started in on anime, serious anime, where, you know, OVA anime, where I was attending the conventions and stuff, probably a year or so after discovering Metroid. So that stuff was already certainly out, you know, things like Ixer and certainly things like Gundam and things like Bubblegum Crisis and sort of that sort of ilk of anime. So, yeah, very, very important. And of course, you know, when we learn Samus's identity and we talk about that, she, you know, she's, you know, probably for me, one of the first anime girls in video games that I could remember, you know, I mean, you had things like fantasy star and stuff like that at that time, but I really, it wasn't on my radar yet. So yeah, perfect. Perfectly said, especially dovetailing with anime and, and, and manga. It really, um, was the, one of the first serious, really one of the first anime games essentially, as it turns out. It's a wonderful time really. When you think about that mid eighties to mid nineties time, or even early nineties, just in discovering science fiction and kind of this new wave of science fiction that was inspired by the sci-fi that I personally wasn't exposed to until I was older. Whether you're talking about, you know, the, the, you're talking about the classics, really, like Bradbury and stuff like that. Right. And even, you know, uh, even stuff obviously older than that. But I really like think fondly back from a fictional standpoint at that particular time period for lots of different mediums because it was really really rock solid. I mean, I'm not a Star Trek fan. We often make fun of Star Trek on the show, but even Star Trek a lot of people think the best Star Trek was happening around that time too, right? Like with Next Generation and all that kind of stuff in the 90s and in the late 80s, I think, and the movies, I think a lot of that stuff was happening too. So like there was a lot going on and and the wonder of that Carl Sagan, in, you know, injected into society with stuff like Cosmos and there was just a lot in the 80s that I feel like is is nice to look back upon because a lot of it seems so quaint today, but I feel like it was quite powerful. Oh, absolutely. You know? Absolutely. I mean, you could even think about things like Blade Runner. This was, even if you think of like cyberpunk now, of course, Metroid, you know, set in a world that's often organic 
and alien. But one of the first games for me, at least, that sort of engaged my imagination where you see Samus, you see she comes to this place, she's got this high tech gear. It almost made you think like, okay, well, this world looks like this, but where, what's the world look like where she comes from she's obviously all teched out with her gear and her weaponry and all that kind of stuff is it seem more like she could come from a place that looks like a blade runner-esque you know city planet or something one of the first games that really engaged my imagination that way and also because they sort of they weren't spoon feeding you all the information in this game it left a lot to the imagination and you know again we talk about it a lot sort of a, sort of a recurring theme on knockback but it left especially in the first game or two or three it left enough mystique there where you worried about the main sort of not worried but you sort of wondered about the main character and where she came from and what she was about and you wanted to know more it sort of strung you along it kind of gave you that carrot strung you along to tell you just enough to be interested but it didn't edify all of your questions and i think that's what was really special about the game as well and the series especially in the beginning especially in the first few you know metroid iterations yeah very well said and and i love that you brought up ridley scott's alien specifically because not only is it such a thematic touchstone but the character ridley is clearly named after ridley scott which is another thing that i didn't realize until i was older either i dig and i didn't make a lot of connections about this game and like what was going on with this game until i was older like i just didn't there because there's a lot under the under the hood here yeah with this game which is why i think it's so interesting don't you think it's so well i guess in talking about how it's interesting we should talk about some of the personnel involved in this game too because the reason that i i'm fascinated about this game is because with one or two exceptions one prominent exception there weren't big names working on this game internally this isn't part of the like zelda miyamoto mario group Right. Necessarily. Right. It's a lot of people that were doing some other stuff that kind of came to this as well. And obviously, we should probably talk about, I guess, the most prominent person of all in all this, which is Gunpei Yokoi. And he unfortunately died tragically, as I'm sure many of the listeners know, in the mid 90s. He died in 1997 in a car accident. Yeah, that's Uh, but. He's best known for developing and designing and working on the original Game Boy and Rob, R.O.B. And of course, famously, the Virtual Boy. And I didn't realize this either, Dagan, is that like right around the time he passed, he also was working on one. He he worked on the original Wonder Swan for Bandai. That's amazing. I didn't know. That's super. I didn't know that. When that was after now. Yeah, right. He, He had left Nintendo at some point. So when he passed, he was no longer employed by Nintendo, right? As that's that's how I understand it. Yeah, I think that, I think yeah, that's he correct. left in nineteen ninety. He I think he left in nineteen ninety six, and then passed away tragically in nineteen ninety seven. So he has a real pedigree, obviously in hardware, all the way going back to Game and Watch, and then all the way through the NES and SNES era, and obviously with the original Game Boy, which is so important and such a seminal piece of Nintendo hardware. But he's, you know, the producer of this game. He's the man kind of steering the ship with this game. And I love that alongside Satoru Okada, who directed it. Right. And he also directed Kid Icarus. Now, Yokoi directed Kid Ic- or produced Kid Icarus. So you can already tell that there's some there's something special brewing in between these two men and the games that they put out. Just those two specific games, because and I think you would agree with this. Those two games, those two games stick out 
amongst all of the other NES launch games as being deeper and more dynamic and far more difficult than anything that was produced or developed by anything else, which means these guys are kind of right up my alley, really. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Well said. So the, I guess, third component of this dev team that I, I, would, I would say is probably maybe most obscure, Okada actually, Satoru Okada, who directed the game, actually also directed Super Mario Land. He was like integral in the early Game Boy line. As far as I understand, he was at Nintendo for a long time. He retired, actually, from Nintendo in 2012, from what I can tell. Oh, wow. But okay. That's cool. Yeah. But Hiroji Kiyotaki is the artist and the designer of Samus, also the designer of Wario, apparently. Oh, and, I didn't know that. That's cool. That's awesome. And this particular guy actually moved on to direct the sequel to Metroid, also directed the sequel to Super Mario Land. So maybe in some sort of protege kind of relationship with these guys, with Okada and Yokoi. So there's something special about the magic that these three guys kind of cooked up because clearly you have some awesome gameplay and some deep gameplay. And you can tell that these guys love nonlinearity and love mystery in their games. You can draw that from the Kid Icarus dungeons and you can draw that from all of Metroid, right? Absolutely. But also this really different kind of art, because if you put Samus next to the ice climbers or something like that, or next to obviously Mario and Luigi, or even next to Link and Ganon, she just doesn't look like she belongs. And I actually think this still stands out prominently in the Smash Brothers games. Like she, th those games do a really wonderful job of melding all these disparate components and they're obviously fantastic games. Sure. But she doesn't look like she's a Nintendo character. To me, no, still, absolutely. To this day. Absolutely, dude. Uh, it's the, she really Samus really stands out then and now. Yeah. And it really does boil down to the distinctive sort of flavor of their games, of this group's games. And I would say also the substance. There's a substance there besides a very distinctive aesthetic and a distinctive flavor. There's a. And something distinctively different tonally, there's a, you know, there's a substance there that that's a little, I think that's what makes it so special. And I think so, that's what makes them really stand out, especially in talking about Metroid, is that it was really, I mean, they seem, it seems, if you think about it in a simplistic way, it seems like them, Nintendo back then, making a palpable pitch for a more adult, quote unquote, a more adult-like game. You know, especially if you look at everything I'm surrounded by with the Marios and all the black box stuff and all the, the goofier, you know, albeit super fun, but cartoony stuff. It does seem like a pitch to do something a little more adult and something that, you know, uh, you know, big kids slash even even grown men and women would would, uh, you know, sort of gravitate towards. But beside beyond that, there's this there's a substance to it that is a little it's it's enough to be in the, the box with other Nintendo IPs, but it also really stands out from other Nintendo IPs to the point where it could not be, you know, it could possibly not be if you didn't know any better a Nintendo IP, which I think that's really what makes it so special. The other thing that makes it so interesting to me is, and I guess this kind of conversation can go through as we talk about the other games, but is that for a series that has such a niche audience and actually and I've, ta I've talked about this for years doesn't sell that well right and I think that that surprises a lot of people there it's really not a big seller it's, it, even the Metroid Prime games were not big sellers but Nintendo keeps going back to this well and actually treating this IP with a great deal of care which has always been really fascinating to me 
Like this almost seemed like from the very beginning a way for them to experiment and almost like it's like at IGN and I'm sure in art it exists too. what we call prestige pieces, pieces that are made not for profit, but to make something look good, whether it's an outlet or a publisher or whatever. Like Metroid almost strikes me as that kind of game that's yeah. like necessary in, in that catalog for me. I think you're absolutely right, Kyle. It almost seems like a pet project. You know, it's like, you know, easily there. I mean, I wanted to talk to you about this at some point in the conversation, but, you know, it's easily their third most important IP, if that. I mean, during that, you know, if you think of Mario and Zelda and then you get down to Metroid and it does seem like the thing that they're, you know, they it almost seems like a, a thing that's very special to them beyond what it brings in, which is what you said. And also, you know, they they also treat the IP with a extreme amount of reverence. You know, everything's very well thought out. Samus is a very, you know, is dealt with sort of with a great deal of reverence and respect. The character, the way they progress the story over the, you know, over the different Metroid game iterations. So, yeah, very, very interesting conversation. It's very unlike almost anything they've ever done, even up to this point. Another interesting man that was involved in the development of this game was a guy named Makoto Kano, who was one of the, I guess, designers of the game, but also the writer of the game's lore. And not surprisingly, also a designer and the writer of the lore for, you guessed it, Kid Icarus. And I always wanted to get deeper into this guy's mind because one of the things that we have to discuss here, Dagan, is how brutally hard this game is and how much it ramps up in difficulty and and because of how obscure it is, how it can be endlessly and actually impossibly difficult for people to play, which, again, is one of the things that we talked about early on that I think is a hallmark of the game, but something that I I think might even turn off some players today. And I, I hope that's not the case, because I really feel like, as we said earlier, just the genetics of this game means mean that you really should go back and enjoy it. But talk to me about the difficulty, because this game is up there with Kid Icarus as like if you put all of the launch games that could be beaten in front of me or the launch era games or even the few games that came out around that time the, uh, for those few years, I, I think Metroid and Kid Icarus would have to be the two hardest. Oh, right? gosh. Easily. Easily, dude. Absolutely. Yeah. Very well said. Yeah. If you think about, you know, the eight, the early 8-bit Nintendo library and even going beyond that, even if you did, which me- most people didn't, but even if you did have access to like a Sega Master System or something like that. If you think about all the games during that period, you know, you had two things. You had arcade ports, which were like, you know, high score games or games that you could maybe flip. You know, it's three or four boards. You're going for high score. You know, you think of your Donkey Kongs and your Popeyes and all that kind of stuff. Then you have the early games that sort of broke out of that mold like we talked about in our Super Mario Brothers one, two, three episode where you had the first Super Mario Brothers game for the NES, which was like a game, you know, one of those early games that you could actually complete. There was a there was a journey. There was a mission. You had to rescue the princess and there was a goal. You could a game that you could actually finish this game, especially, dude, if you talk about it in the in the context of 1987, when video games were still very young and Nintendo was still very young with the NES you know, it was almost like we had this feeling. I remember this very palpable feeling of being like, all right, this game is so cryptic and so obtuse that you're almost trusting. You almost feel like at a certain point, like, is this thing actually a thing? Like you, 
can can we actually get anywhere in this game? Not only is it super difficult, but it's super cryptic. Where not only is it hard to get anywhere, but it's like where when we have the capability and the skill to get anywhere, where do we go? You know, it's almost like you're trusting them that it is something. There's a there's a certain point in the game where like trust has to sort of trump everything and you're like, "All right, there has to be a way to do this. There has to be a way to progress." You know, this was the first game that made me feel like that. You know, beyond a very again, a very simplistic, you know, the early Atari 2600 games that were cryptic. You know, Indiana Jones, Adventure, ET, those games were a mess. But this was the first game where it was like it felt actually scary. You were you were just like, all right, like I finally got good enough to make it here, but it's a dead end, apparently. You know, not you didn't realize you have to you had to sort of enhance your character and power up and obtain certain skills and certain weapons and certain items in order to progress. You know, for instance, you weren't going to be able to get to a certain climb to a certain height until you had the ice beam to freeze enemies to use them as platforming, you know, as platforms to progress. So it was that type of thing where one little thing that you found was so exciting, like finding your first missile container so you could blow up the, you know, the, the red doors, finding your first, you know, finding the morph ball so you could duck, finding the bombs so you could blow holes in the floor. It was the first game where such a seemingly insignificant discovery opened up vast amounts of the game. And that's what sort of made us go on and actually sort of made us sort of courageous enough to keep going with it because it was brutally difficult. You know, what's funny too, Kyle, you had mentioned earlier in the episode, you know, one of the first games where I can remember people actually drawing, you know, taking the graph paper or taking the loose leaf paper and making maps because it was that difficult, you know, making maps and sort of backtracking and, you know, gritting it all out. I never remember doing that with this game. And I also was really proud of not not with this game. I definitely did it with other games of this era. But I remember really having a hard time with Blaster Master. But not only the graph paper thing, but we didn't use Nintendo Power for this game either. But again, we were a little older. I think my friends were like 14. I was in the older bracket. Like we were anywhere from 14 to 17. So we were already a little older, so we didn't really, we could actually figure it out. And maybe, maybe older brothers were instrumental in that too, because we, you know, some of my friends had brothers that were in their late teens, early 20s. And we would all play this game together. But that, if you think about it in the context of 1987, how different this game was, it was, you know, it can't be, it can't be overstated. It was just insane, the difficulty. I think you speak on something that's interesting, too, that Jeshua Anderson wrote into us about here. And remember, if you support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand, not, early, not only do you get early ad-free access to every episode of Knockback and my other podcasts, but you also get the ability to submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas. Just like Jeshua did, he said, the Metroid series is the one series I always thought I didn't like, but then I play it and I can't put it down. Every new game released, I think, passed, and I play it at a friend's, or like in 2001, I tested it and I realized I love it. Getting new abilities feels like a drug hit or something. I just love it. And I, I agree. It, it's such, you know, you brought up adventure, which is definitely an early example of role playing or nonlinearity or sure. mystery, let's say, on console. But it is that this is the embryonic state of what we understand as this kind of game now, but without the in game map. See, Super Metroid, even in having the map, just having a map, for instance, on the UI made it seem like it was more of a coherent game. And so people had that as more of a touchstone. But that simply wasn't possible on the NES. It simply wasn't possible on the hardware to have that. I mean, 
I said it earlier, even the inventory system is so elegant in the game using the select button with this really minimalistic. I mean, if you compare this to like Mario yeah. or you compare it to Castlevania, it's very, very sleek and incredibly pared back and really speaks to the design and the inherent design of it. And I think what you said earlier is interesting, too. Like, it's not like Castlevania 2 where it's literally impossible. If you don't know what, like, if you don't have a friend in the playground or something, <laughs> yeah. Metroid is Metroid is kind of beatable. You just have to sit there and do it. And like you said, either make maps or have friends who knew something that you didn't know at that time. So I really like that aspect of the game. But the other aspect of it I like is the same thing I like about Castlevania, too, is that this game has multiple endings based on how quickly uh, you beat it. Exactly. And obviously one of the iconic or the iconic ending or iconic series of endings, I think I should say reveals Samus to be a woman and actually reveals her in her bathing suit, which is or like her bikini or whatever, which is a little weird. But, (laughs) you know, especially in the cold, harsh (laughs) vacuum of space. But nonetheless, what what was your thought about her being a female protagonist? Was this something that was memorable to you at the time? Oh, definitely. Definitely, dude. Now, I, I have to say, even to this day, I never, we never, even back then, we never got that ending. I never got that ending myself, even though I beat Metroid multiple times. But we found out about it, you know, playground style, word of mouth. It might have been, it might have even been Nintendo Power. Nintendo Power plays such a big role in gaming of this era. You know, Nintendo Power magazine. But we never actually got that ending. But the fact of, you know, Samus actually turning out to be fe- a female protagonist, you know, again, and, you know, the, you know, the bikini clad under the armor, again, anime girl, right? Like anime, science fiction, space girl. Yeah, we knew, we already knew that. That spoke to us. So it just for us, for my friends and particularly like my, my set of friends, my group of friends, you know, very nerdy, very into anime, uh, very, very much into sci-fi, you know, it was like, oh yeah, this is you know, that just made Metroid even that much cooler, you know, because then it was like, oh my gosh, this is a, this is a, this is an anime game, you know, for back then, you know, we did, this was before even CD and cutscenes and, you know, ease and Magic Knight Ray Earth and all that kind of stuff before, you know, proper anime games. This was what we, this is what we had to sort of cling to. This was an anime game for us, you know, for, you know, early, you know, late eighties anime nerds, this was an anime game. So that even made it so much cooler for us. And I remember it being one of the things in video games for me as a young guy, like thinking like, wow, that's a really thoughtful touch. Like games are actually starting to tell stories. G- games are actually becoming really thoughtful, more more like movies. They're making it, it almost seemed like the people that were creating it were taking it seriously. It wasn't just something to you know, pump quarters into or take your money or make a goofy little cartoony thing. It was the first... One of the first games, and of course you have to talk about Zelda too, but one of the one of the first, certainly one of the first games that made it se- seem a little, you know, skew a little older and seem a little more thoughtful in the storytelling and doing thoughtful things like making a female protagonist, you know, and and also again rewarding your sort of efforts, you know, that was actually a really cool sort of spoiler and a sort of a cool surprise at the end if you could, you know, if you could get through it, if you could persevere. And that was really neat. I remember that really resonating with me as a, as like a young man. Like, you know, wow, games are something. It's not just Space Invaders. It's not just, you know, games are sort of taking the next step in the, in their journey, in their evolution, which was kind of fun. It's interesting that you brought that up, too, just because 
with the password system, you're able to kind of, and it's the same thing with Castlevania 2, you're able to manipulate the game in such a way where you can see the good endings if you really wanted to later on, if you were privy to that information, which is the only, you know, because Sean Mason wrote into us and asked when we were the first time, do we remember when we first found out? I don't remember finding out that she was female per se, but I remember that I wasn't able to beat the game in the requisite amount of time to see that without cheating, using whatever cheat it was, Justin Bailey or whatever the fuck the cheat was sure. that <laughs> that allowed Bailey. you to see to, to see her. So for me, that that's the, the password system and, and kind of circumventing that as a younger kid, not because I thought Samus was hot or it was like, you know, like a sexy thing for me. It was just <laughs> it was interesting. It was interesting. And and I, I it was an exciting secret. And it's a clever design secret, too, or I guess a ca- clever design philosophy in hindsight knowing a little more about games obviously now that we did as children that's probably a really memory friendly way to give people reasons to play again zelda did the same thing obviously with the new game plus or whatever it was called second quest sure but it's it's just a nice way to in a very memory friendly way on these very limited early cartridges to give you a different way to play or something new to strive for which i really appreciate and the other thing that I wanted to bring up here, and I think this is going to speak to you a lot, Dig, and you know a lot about NES collecting, so you can correct me on this, but okay. this is one of the few games that had two very specific releases, right? Yes. On NES? Yes, it did. Because there are two different versions of this game at retail. Yes, there are. There are. You have two different NES cards, you know, North American NES cards for it. So, because I, I, I remember being in KB Toys in East Patchwork or wherever the fuck it was, and seeing those games stacked up, it's like one of those things you just always remember. I remember seeing them and not being familiar that that like, where did that Metroid? What is this Metroid? And then asking to see it and looking at the back and realizing it's just the same game that they, for some reason, released again. I'm so curious about what they saw behind the scenes or why that was, because that was not a necessarily common thing to do. No. To reprint games. No, like not at all. In fact, it was maybe the first time I remember seeing that. I don't know that I had, I had seen that before. Like, you know, Colin's referring to the earlier silver label game, and then later they released the yellow label with the different artwork, you know, for the NES cart. Um, I'm not sure when the yellow label was released, actually. You know, if we had the silver label in 87... When was the yellow? The, the yellow label must have, it couldn't have been in any later than 88. I, it couldn't have been, right? I mean, really, if you think about it logically. But it's interesting. And, and I was pricing them on eBay too, thinking that, you know, let me, let me kind of check it out because, you know, Metroid is a, you know, if you're an NES collector, you know, that's a staple in your collection. So I wasn't really thinking about Metroid. So just to see what the average eBay, eBay price was. And again, Colin already spoke to this. We were going to do this in Wave 7. So this was a few months back that we started researching this, but the average eBay price for a buy it now Metroid is 15 bucks. So not, you know, the NES, the prices of NES carts have started to go down again in the last couple of years, but you know, kind of a, a round way you would think it was, Ob- you know, obviously a very common game. Um, you know, you know, it does have the password save. So, you know, and yeah, you know what the other thing Kyle about this game where, you know, people, I hear people saying this, and I don't remember this being striking to me, but if you think about it in a historical context, it must have been very striking. You know, as far as going left, in quotes, going left in a game was very unique. You know, if you if you were, you know, if you played a game, typically even a game like Super Mario Brothers, which I think Metroid and Super Mario Brothers came out for the NES within a month of each other, if I'm not mistaken, a month or two. They came out very close to each other. 
Actually, actually, that strike that. I think it was Metroid and Zelda that came out within a month of each other. But, you know, if you think of Mario, you know, you're going right. The, you know, the, the fact of being independent to be able to go left or right or up or down in the game, that was also a very new thing for back then. This was a really, this was a very new concept in gaming, especially in home gaming. So that was another thing to, to talk about, you know, as, as far as doing things first. It's It's one of those pre well it's it's a pre-tutorial video game era way to tell you how to play the game that Absolutely. you're gonna go both ways and so it immediately makes you go left yeah just to show you that you can that you can which is it's just a design it's a brilliant design philosophy you're gonna start the game and immediately go left very <laughs> so, well said it's so fun absolutely and you can't go far but you can go so exactly right, exactly. and, and well you said. can't and you can't proceed much farther to the right without having known to go left. So you're just going to be stuck there forever, basically. <laughs> so clever, dude. Now, Dig, before we move on to Metroid Two, which I want to talk about because I feel like that's the game with the biggest mystique for me personally. Okay, Patrick Crowen wrote in with a funny story that I'd be, well, I'd be loath not to read. Please, he says, "Hey, Dagan and Colin, I was pretty stoked to see the Metroid was one of the topics of this wave." Well, Patrick. Sorry, we, sorry, we let you down. I love this series, and Super Metroid is not only my favorite Metroid, but my favorite video game in general. I was actually introduced to the series, though, through my friend's hatred of the original. He had gotten it for Christmas of 87 and found the game too confusing. I must, I must sidestep a bit and explain that this kid was a lot like Cartman from South Park. He was an annoying, spoiled brat, but he had all the cool toys and video games, so it was worth suffering through his personality to have access to them. With Metroid, he was so pissed that he couldn't get very far, so he concocted a story about the game being stolen by a bully, so his mom would buy him something different. He said as long as I went along with the story, I could keep Metroid for myself. As it turned out later, the reason he was so frustrated with the game was because he never bothered trying to travel left once he hit the, the dead end at the beginning of the game, so he didn't get the morph ball to travel under the small gap. His loss was my game because the game was amazing. I still remember drawing out maps and writing down codes to get through the game, and to think I owe it all to the kid that would, would have never given him the game away under any other circumstance. Take care, you two, and keep up oh, that's, the good work. That's <laughs> you know, I could see, especially... I could see, especially people of your generation, Kyle, who were really young when this game came out or when they first gave it a shot, I could see really hating this game because it didn't give that sort of childlike instant gratification. This was something new. You know, this was something where you really had to sort of persevere and almost suffer <laughs> in order to progress. And it was so different. It was such a different idea for a game for back then you know it wasn't this colorful sort of friendly type thing it was bleak it was atmospheric it was dark it was dank it felt you know it felt like dangerous it felt frustrating so i could really see that especially for younger guys again i was like 15 16 when i started playing this so i could see like people be like kids be like what the hell is this shit like can we take this back and get something else you know that's so it's so funny dude now kyle i have to it's, tell you yeah, i have an investigative please. report i couldn't wait to break this i did a lot of research on this and i have you know we talk about you know one of the first things we've already talked about it a lot with the character of samus and her sort of be it being revealed that you know our protagonist is actually the heroine She's a female. This was something really new in gaming. Again, you know, you, if you think about it, it's true. We didn't have that many females in video games up to this point. We had Miss Pac-Man, of course, and we had a couple of other things. But Samus was one of the first females in video games. And she's, 
you know, she's sort of known for that. And, you know, she's very holds that very important role. And, you know, we really revere her and Nintendo for that. But in my research, now you guys have to go look at this if you get a chance and you could remember to do this. There was a 1985 game, arcade game, in, in Japanese arcades made by Namco called Baraduke. Okay. And it was an arcade, sort of a 2D shooter with a, you know, a space character, sort of side-scrolling shooter with a space character, sort of a platformer, and you're kind of going along and you're shooting aliens and you're kind of in this, it's very weird, man, in this beige, brown spacesuit with a mask and a helmet, okay? It looks very Metroid-ish, okay? Now, I don't think too many people knew about this game because it was a Japanese arcade game by Namco. Later on, apparently, it was released for Namco Museum collection volume five for the playstation in 97 and maybe i and supposedly it was on virtual console as well which i'm really sorry i missed because i would have loved to see this game um and a couple other collections for the x namco collections for the xbox 360 and stuff but apparently in this game when not not only does this game look very metroid like but at the end of this game the character comes out of her spacesuit and it is a heroine her name is kissy apparently and it's very, very Metroid-esque, okay? Interesting, so, interesting. Very interesting to know. Now, of course, we know little tidbits of information. We know in the development of Metroid at some point, you know, it wasn't this sort of pre-thought-out thing that Samus was going to be a girl. Apparently, somewhere in the throes of production, they said, wouldn't this be fun to make her a girl? So it wasn't sort of a thing that they were considering doing from the beginning at some point the idea dwelled on them and we also know she was very influenced her design apparently was very influenced supposedly by kim basinger basinger i guess but even though i don't necessarily see that but apparently she was you know influenced by that you know very famous movie star but as as you you, as you can tell by the beautiful pixel art the beautiful pixel art and green hair whatever (laughs) (laughs) it reminds me of like we always make fun of uh, the princess in the original Super Mario Brothers. Oh my! God. Who looks like a fucking <laughs> <laughs> looks like a goon. <laughs> I know they couldn't have done better than that. And like, yeah, all those early and uh, Pauline from Donkey Kong that wasn't looking too wasn't looking too great. But if you look at this Baraduke game, there's a lot of similarities to Metroid, and I had never heard it talked about so when i found it i was really interested and i just got all the information in fact when this episode goes up if you guys sort of get at me on twitter or instagram i'll send you the little blurb the little it's actually a full-on article with screenshots and everything it looks a lot like metroid it's not cryptic it's just a straight-up platform of this game but the fact that she looks a lot like samus and then it turns out to be a female reveal i don't know that seems kind of interesting i know very interesting. I wonder if that was more well known or is more well known in Japan or Japanese gaming circles. Like you would this, think that's possible. Hanging similarity. Sure. Yeah. Sure. It's it's so frustrating that to, it persists to this day. It was much more mysterious back then and even much more mysterious when I was a kid in the 90s on the Internet. But it's kind of a shame that there's still this massive language and cultural gulf between Japan and the rest of the world in terms of what must be known or must be inherent knowledge there that's still like this mystical and forbid knowledge here. It kind of frustrates the shit out of me, actually, because it doesn't really happen in any other industry. It doesn't seem like you're right about that. Yeah, absolutely. 
No, you're absolutely right about that. It's very strange. <laughs> there's there's no bigger advantage in the gaming industry than knowing Japanese, specifically because it probably allows you to explore these random holes on the internet that are in, you know, and I don't mean that as an insult, these random rabbit holes, let's say on the internet, that are probably chock full of shit that we don't know or that we take for granted or that it is this kind of forbidden or unknown knowledge. You're absolutely so right that's about good. that. Very good point. So that's good to know. It is good, good to, to know. It's good to know. Well, thank, well, I'll try to, I'll try to cook up as many investigative reports as I can for these things. Thank you, Gumshoe. <laughs> <laughs> now, Dave, I'm going to make an executive decision here as okay. we move into Metroid 2. Please. We did a similar thing because I'm looking at the clock here and how long we've been recording. I did a similar thing when we did the Star Wars toys episode in which we were both going to talk about our experiences. Yeah. We're running so long that I'm cutting Super Metroid out of this episode. We can do Super Metroid like we can do a Super Metroid episode. There's no reason to, to, to shove it in here. Oh, Super you know? Metroid. So I mean, absolutely, Kyle. I mean, as you very well know, Super Metroid is many people's favorite game of all time, if not their top five or top ten. So that game is easily a topic on its own. So, and yeah, I know so you I'm have very specific feelings about it and I have very specific feelings about it. So we could easily do two hours on Super Metroid. I think that's a, I think that's a great executive decision. That's why you, that's why you are who you are, my friend. That's why I do what I do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Now, Dagan, Metroid's sequel is called Metroid 2 Return of Samus. Mm -hmm. And it came to Game Boy, depending on where you are in either 1991 or 1992, 1991 for most of the world. And Game Boy obviously came out in 1989, so this was not a launch era Game Boy game, but it was in that second wave of Game Boy games, specifically from the first party. A much more impressive game, for instance, than like Super Mario Land, in which, ironically, the characters are so small you can't fucking see anything. In this game, and I wrote it here in my notes, I wrote, this is what it says verbatim, Samus is fucking huge. That's what, the, <laughs> that's what it says. So I'm curious... What you think or what you remember of this game. This is a game, Dagan, that I haven't played in many years that I have a specific memory about when I first saw it. Okay. And who owned it and where I like my impressions of it at that point. But also I remain very frustrated that this game is so inaccessible. Like it's really hard to be able to play this game still. Yeah, today, it's crazy now. And I don't really understand why that is. But nonetheless, Metroid 2. And we didn't really, I guess, should we, we guess I didn't really go into the story of Metroid. Metroid, as Dagan says, is about a, a Samus, a female bounty hunter. The original game takes place in 20X5, which is really funny. So it already happened. And it's about space pirates that attack the Galactic Federation. I actually think I wrote down, did I write it? Where did I write it down? Did I write it in these notes? I actually verbatim wrote down somewhere. Here it is. The, uh, the ending text as well. I want to read to you in a minute because it's so funny. Because the story is such nonsense. But basically, <laughs> there are these Metroids, which are these mysterious creatures being held on planet SR388. And they ex escape or whatever. And Samus has to go to Zebes, which I think is called Zebeth, actually, in the game itself. Yes. But it was later retconned into Zebes. And has to fight the mother brain in order to get the Metroid back. Actually, before we even jump to what the ending says, what do you remember about that ending in the original Metroid 2? Because I love fighting mother brain in it's such a different kind of boss battle especially for that time oh and i also have that connection to her weird ass character in captain n yes you know. <laughs> i'm glad you remembered to talk about that oh they so let's before we even captain get into metroid 2 let's 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 
go into that the the ending mother brain all of that what do you remember about the end oh dude sorry to, sorry so... to jump around by the way to the audience but i definitely want to get into this oh no definitely it was so it was it was the most epic boss fight we had ever well first of all some of the earlier some of the earliest boss fights in video games that i can remember especially ones that were so exciting i mean you had you know really just three epic boss fights in metroid you had the character ridley then you had Kraid. The other monster and then you finally got down to the bowels of the planet and you found mother brain and it was first of all i remember it being so striking because that level her you know mother brain sort of lair looked so different than the other game the music completely changed it was complete a whole different tune when you got to her which was like completely you know stood out so so much from the other music and, you know, the rest of the score, the other music in the game. And, you know, you had to destroy the barriers and have, you know, be equipped with so many missiles to destroy the barriers to get to her. And just it being so satisfying to destroy those barriers and then so satisfying when you hit Mother Brain with your projectiles when she made that noise. You know, it was like that first really palpable, crunchy, like you felt like you were really damaging her. And, you know, the whole thing of having to, you know, the whole thing of having to escape after you destroy her as well. You know, I don't remember ever that being a thing in games. This was a, this was the first time, you know, that it's we so already tense. Oh, my God. It was so much, so much tension. You know, it just brought you there. It, it was one of those first video game experiences for me, even as an older kid. You know, it just really brought you into the game. You know, it's completely immersed you into the game. You know, we weren't used to games like that. You know, this was a whole new, a whole new ball of wax, you know. Now, what about for you, Kyle? You were much younger, you know. I can see it being kind of scary for a kid, actually. It was scary. She's one of the memorable villains along with Jockio in Ninja Gaiden. Oh, yeah. Where I was like horrified <laughs> of these characters for at some point. And some of the enemies in Dragon Quest or Dragon Warrior, I was also, you know, scared of like yeah. the the gold axe knight or whatever, or the golden knight or whatever the hell his name was. This is these weird, eerie looking enemies. But Mother Brain, like you said, was so bastardized on oh my God. Captain N, the Game Master, the which voice. for people that don't know is a Nintendo cartoon that, which, by the way, everyone was bastardized in Captain N, the Game Master. Every character. They bastardized, they bastardized Pit from Kid Icarus. They bastardized Mega Man. They bastardized Simon Belmont from Castlevania. Ugh. Everybody. Everybody's uh, fucked Kim in that Hippo, show. Right? I have no idea what the hell they were doing in that show. <laughs> it's so bad. It was like Smash Brothers, but... If Smash Brothers was missing a chromosome, basically. Oh, if you guys so, never saw Captain N, go watch it. It's insane. But, Dave, the ending. I was watching a video of the ending today before we started recording okay. of the original Metroid. <laughs> I was dying at the text. It says, when it reveals Samus or whatever, it says, great, with two exclamation points. You fulfilled your mission. Fulfilled is misspelled. <laughs> it will. <laughs> this is my favorite line. It will revive peace in space. <laughs> <laughs> but then it says... But it may be invaded by other Metroid by the I'm sorry, by the other Metroid. Pray for a true peace in space. <laughs> <laughs> was was this our first taste of English? Um, could it, it have might been? have been. Yeah, it, it might be. Been. It might be because the others, the other Nintendo early Nintendo games didn't have endings even that complicated because Metroid also had its own intro. Which is also rare. Right, right. By the way. Good and point. The, and the music hangs and all of that. And that opening chime when you first get control of Samus, the 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 uh the notes, 
where it's like, dun, 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 oh, dun. it's like, <laughs> I love that. I love that so oh, much. So I actually was looking on how to play that on guitar, but I couldn't find any tab for it. Oh, that would have been cool to do for the show. I was going to put it on. Well, I was going to put it on Instagram to tease the episode. But <laughs> too bad. So Metroid 2 is about Samus being sent to the Metroid homeworld to basically kill the remaining Metroid that exists still. And there are, I guess, four different types of Metroids, the Alpha, Gamma, Omega and Zeta Metroids. And then there's a fifth one that follows Samus, I guess. And there's this is all part of like the the Metroid lore, yeah. as it were. Right. And so the R&D one connection here is obviously to Game Boy, because we were talking about Yokoi before, who produced this game as well. This game was directed uh, by Hiroji Kiyotaki, who remember I told you earlier was the artist that designed Samus. Exactly. So now he's kind of stepped up to it to the chair promotion. And this game to me is <laughs> I was comparing screenshots of Super Metroid, which we're now not going to talk about today and Metroid 2. Yeah, because I remember them both having humongous sprites. But actually, the sprite in Metroid is comically large in Metroid 2. Oh, it's so big. dude! And dude, it's huge. It's way bigger than it is. <laughs> Then I remembered it being in, you know, Samus being in Super Metroid or Metroid 3. So talk to me a little bit about your memory of this game, because this game, again, being so inaccessible, I think I have a copy of it. I think I might have a copy of it on Game Boy. You would have it if I do. But it's one of those games where I wa I had to watch. a You know, th there's a great channel on YouTube for people that don't know called World of Long Plays. Yes. Are you familiar with this channel? Dave? Oh, you yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's super. It's super and good you can, resource. It's awesome. You can just go watch. I, I find most Let's Plays really annoying. People are talking over games and shit. I know people like watching mine, but I don't like watching other people's. So <laughs> this is a really cool way for grumpy people like me to watch Let's Plays of a game being played artfully with no commentary over it. So there's really great resources for all three Metroid or early Metroid games, especially these two. And so I went and watched video footage of this being captured, presumably from a super of Super Game Boy, you would have to assume is where it's being captured from. And yeah, you would think so. Again, Metro Samus is just huge, but I was reading some of the critical reception of this game because I don't remember that from the early 90s and people don't care a lot about this game or care much for it. They think it's like really linear. And I guess I never really thought about that about it that way, but it's on this much more simplistic hardware and it's supposed to be a much more pick up and play game. So right. What are your memories of Metroid 2? Well, you know what, Kyle? We talked about it on the show before. Now, I never had a Game Boy. I I really did, didn't did like the first Game Boy. I mean, I was older when it came out. You were the first guy or one of the first guys I knew who had it. So I only really played Game Boy when I was hanging out with you. I was very frustrated at the, you know, the initial Game Boy because I you, I couldn't see it. I, I just even even more so maybe than most people. I just got so frustrated with playing that thing, even though some of the games were cool. I mean, you talk about Super Mario Land and stuff like that. There were some amazing games for the Game Boy, but I just could not get past the fact of not seeing it. So I never played Metroid 2. And it was always one of those games where I wanted to get into. I always felt like I missed it because I loved the first Metroid so much. And so what happened was I never played it before. So when I knew we were going to do a Metroid talk, I went out. And played it on a Game Boy emulator first initially. Now, I don't remember. I downloaded both Game Boy emu emulators at some point. KIGB and the BGB emulator. I'm not sure which one I played it on. But that's when I first started playing it. And then I said, you know what? Let me see what this thing's going for on eBay right now. This is probably about four, four or five months ago. And 
I got it for 20 bucks. It was a buy it now. It came with the instruction book. I'm, I I love my instruction books. In fact, I have I have my Metroid 2 instruction book right here. And I re- I do like the game. I think it's really a lot of fun. Now, literally, Samus does take up about a quarter of the screen. It's ridiculous. It doesn't... It feels very different than the initial Metroid. You know, it, it feels like, you know, in Metroid, you want the world to feel expansive and you want it to feel oppressive and you want it to feel like this alien environment and you want it to feel sort of scary and frightening. And it doesn't feel like that just due to, you know, of course, it's been said many times, the scale of her sprite, but, and it also is much more linear than its bookend games. You know, it's much more linear than Metroid or Super Metroid. But I find it really actually very charming. I think it's very well done. I think the gameplay is very tight. You know, I like things like, you know, I think this is probably on the top of a lot of people's, you know, initial Game Boy game list. But, you know, I know it was released. When was the first release, Kyle? 91, I think? Yeah, 1991 in Japan and North America and 1992 in the rest of the world. Okay. So, you know, I love certain things about it. Like, I love the spider ball. I love the spring ball. A lot of the, you know, the abilities are kind of interesting. I really like the fact that you, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, you start the game with your long shot beam and you start with the morph ball and you start with some missiles. It feels like a really, a really nice, I think it feels like a really nice continuation to Metroid in many ways. And I like the fact that it's a little different and a little bit, you know, it feels a little different. It feels like an evolution, but I really like the way it sort of goes into Super Metroid. I like that it's the middle ground of the trilogy and it sort of foreshadows in many ways what's gonna what's to come in Super Metroid. Not only in the game not only in the story, but in the gameplay and how it feels. And again, we won't talk about too much about Super Metroid, because I think Colin's absolutely right. I think that's its own, you know, I think for for all intents and purposes, that's really its own its own episode. But I really like this game for what it is. You know, I liked it enough to go out and get it. And I love, you know, again, it's very, it's very thoughtful. It's, it's one of the first Game Boy games, if you think about back to 1991, it feels like a very thoughtful game. It seems like Nintendo was very careful to, you know, create a story around it and sort of make Samus and her sort of trials and travails, you know, it sort of, it sort of made it feel like it was something and it felt different than everything else nintendo circa 1991 i i I actually like this game quite a bit i you know i'll I'll admit to it that i didn't beat it i haven't beaten the game but i really do like it i like that it's a little more linear actually because it feels a little more action platformer to me and that's okay you know probably the most of any metroid game that i've played you know and that's okay you know it feels a little different to me but yeah you know for me it's now did you you did own this game Back in the I day. feel like I did. I, I think I bought it later on, and I thought I remembered seeing it at your house, but maybe I saw your copy. Oh, you might have. I mean, house. my Game Boy games are right under the TV cabinet here, so you might have seen Yeah, it. so I think I probably just saw... I think it's just probably why it's in my mind, but my real specific... Because I bought a bunch of shit in high school and college that God only knows what the fuck's in those boxes. But <laughs> I remember specifically... We had a. We often talk about our neighbors down the street, the Kotchers, who we we love and adore, and and they come up often. This story has nothing to do with them because I just want to be clear that th- that's not the neighbors I'm talking about. This game reminds me of another one of our neighbors, Brian. Okay. And Brian was an early adopter of the Game Boy, and he had this game, and I so specifically remember sitting on his couch in his living room one night. I don't know what what night it was, or it was summer, or w- school year, or whatever. 
But I remember sitting there and like watching him play it as he was playing it per your talk underneath a lamp. So it was almost like flat. <laughs> so you could sit on the other side of it. And so it almost made you wonder, like, why are you playing this when we can play the NES? And he's an interesting cat, actually, Brian, because first of all, I've not talked to him since we left uh, that house. So it's been 20 and he actually moved. So it's probably been 25 years or so since wow. I've seen Brian. Holy cow. But he actually was he had an NES and he was interesting because he had like a bunch of random shit that some good, some bad, some novel that, you know, course through him. So like I played Jaws at his house, which is a game that's really memorable for me. And he was really into stuff like, again, the original Metroid, which is kind of memorable for for that. And ice hockey, the Nintendo ice hockey game, which I love and Blades of Steel. So like a lot of interesting stuff were happening at his house. But this is the one non NES game that for some reason I remember playing with this kid or not with him. I remember watching him play and I don't I guess I don't remember or didn't remember or didn't recall at the time, which makes a lot of sense, I suppose, how again, how comically big Samus is. Oh, so funny. and. You have to assume, Dagan, that this is a reaction, although maybe not a necessary one, but Super Mario, if you look at Super Mario Land, for people that don't know, Super Mario Land is a launch Game Boy game or launch era Game Boy game. Right. And Mario's really small in that game. That game shows you a shit ton of geography, a shit ton of territory. If you look at that game, this is like not only a little bit closer, this is like the antithesis of it. And I wonder like why they thought they needed to do, like show so much detail. But I will say that Samus's sprite is beautiful in, in Metroid 2. And the other thing that I noticed in scrubbing through video footage on World of Longplay yeah. was that using only grayscale, which is obviously what the original Game Boy and Game Boy Pocket were limited to, they did a really nice job of geographically making that game feel unique in different areas without having the ability to use much except for a few shades. Yeah. And... So I got to give them a lot of credit for that. Now, I wonder if it's because the director of the game, again, being Hiroji Kiyotake, being an artist, if that had something to do with it, because not it, it, it happens. But usually artists don't become the director of a game. That's usually not the way it goes. No, it's usually a, a producer. Point, or it's usually a designer of some sort. Exactly. It's usually not someone. It's usually not someone with deep technical skill. Whether it's programming or engineering or whether it's art or animation, it's usually not the person. So I wonder if that has something to do with the two, because I, I was struck by how pretty the game was. There are pretty Game Boy games later. Like I always say, it's amazing. Pokemon Red and Blue run on the same exact hardware that this game runs on. Now, That's compare amazing. the two, you know, compare the two or compare even this game to Link's Awakening to Pokemon or something like that. It's pretty amazing. It's striking that they kept this thing alive. Absolutely, yeah, very much. It so. Really, is. yeah. It's really, it's really beautiful. It's really a beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's amazing the level of you know preserving that Metroid atmosphere, you know, on this little on this little Game Boy game. The contrast and the atmosphere and everything is really beautiful. And I wonder now, Kyle. I never, I never thought about it this way before. Before you said it, I wonder if you know the scale of Samus's sprite is due to just making good clarity you know you know being sort of bogged down by you know the initial game boy the original game boy's inherent visibility problems you know and lack of backlighting and all that i wonder if the the size of the sprite is you know directly attributed to just being able to see the game you know and the contrast really is beautiful too the contrast really is beautiful compared to your typical game boy game Absolutely, absolutely. You're absolutely right. That it is. Yeah, yeah. It's good. It's a, it's a really gorgeous game. It's definitely worth. I I really felt like it was worth the twenty bucks. You know, I really felt like 
It was a game I really felt like I was sorely missing out on. You know, you always heard about it. There's not that many Metroid games. So it's like even missing one really felt like, you know, you're missing out on something. And it's a lot of fun. I actually look forward, I look forward to beating it. Of course, I've, you know, you know me. Spoiler Moriarty pants over here. I had to look at the ending and everything like that, but I haven't beaten it myself yet. Although I think I'm pretty close. But yeah, really, really a great great game. And I really, it does, it really does sort of foreshadow things that are going to come in the next game, you know, and it's a nice, it's a nice medium ground between the two, you know, between the NES version and the SNES version in what you could do, you know, your abilities and all that kind of stuff. It's, uh, it seems like a, a logical progression from A to B and then later on from B to C. It seems like a really nice, it's a nice little, uh, a nice little stepstone to Super Metroid. It appears that there's enough time, maybe not so much between Metroid and Metroid 2, which, which there was a pretty big gap for that era in terms of development. But I want to say that by the time Return of Samus was in development and came out, that that was obviously very intentional leading into Super Metroid, which they, in other words, Super Metroid was already known to have probably was going to happen. As opposed to when Metroid was in development, they kind of had to wait and see before Metroid 2 ah, went into development. Great, so they were point. Able to, great point. You know, so they were able to tether them. So that's probably something worth keeping in mind as well. And hey, worth noting too, and I'm curious, this game, unlike the original Western release of Metroid, Metroid 2 allows for battery saves. Does your version of the game have the original battery in it, do you know? Or a replacement? Oh, you know what? I, I, as far as I know, it has the original. That's a great question. I that's don't pretty think cool. it's ever been replaced. No, that's pretty say. cool. Yeah, I love that is that. pretty neat. Now, Dig. Before we wrap things up and play our closing game, which I don't know what it is yet, I do want to make sure people are aware of the various ways these games can be played because I encourage you guys to go and play them. So Metroid 2, which we just talked about, you'd have to have the Game Boy original. And remember, you can play that on Super Game Boy, which would allow you to play it on a TV and stuff like that. I also read that it's on the 3DS Virtual Console, but is Virtual Console just gone everywhere now or just on the Wii? Just on the Wii. It's still as far a- as I know, okay, just so on the still- original Wii. You, it's even available on the Wii U still. Okay, cool. And then the original Metroid's available in a ton of places. You can play it probably most easily on NES Classic. There's also a remake called Zero Mission for the Game Boy Advance. That's four. And then it's available on 3DS Virtual Console, Wii U Virtual Console, and the Nintendo Online service as well. So it's much easier to play the original Metroid than Metroid 2, but I highly recommend it. I think that Metroid is so very important and we'll get into that when we later do a super metroid episode is so very important to where we are now it's so funny actually aaron pointed this out i'm recording this the evening that bloodstained ritual of the night launches worldwide which is the new ega that's metroid right Mania game. wait is that tonight or tomorrow night it's tonight it sh- it'll be available in 48 minutes dude i didn't even realize PSN. that i thought it was tomorrow night oh i'm lost oh i didn't even realize oh now i'm excited so you can go download that on PS4. So I just thought it was ironic. I didn't even make that connection. Aaron did that. We were recording this episode today. So that's Metroid and Metroid 2 Return of Samus, the NES and Game Boy games. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Dagan, how do you want to wrap things up? Well, Kyle, I wanted to run this idea by you that I had. I have this really interesting idea and I want to know what you think of it before you wrap it up. Having to do with Metroid. Inspi- I should say I have an idea inspired by Metroid. Now, what do you think of this, Kyle? And I don't mean to sound morbid, but here's my thought. What do you think about someday when I die, is it cool if I trigger a countdown timer? (laughs) 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 Now, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm thinking. I'm on my deathbed. Everybody gets to say their goodbyes. It's very nice. It's reverent. I'm going out peacefully. 
then you guys have a minute to get the fuck out of the hospital. <laughs> what do you? And think what happens? Your body like, explodes. It, yeah. Everything. It's just gonna blow. This place is gonna blow. <laughs> <laughs> now i'm that. thinking about i don't want to I, I i think i should die like in a hospital because i don't want to blow up my own home but maybe that's wrong because i don't want to hurt people that aren't associated i don't want to hurt anybody but i just thought it would be a lot of fun for people you get some entertainment out of me <laughs> passing away. fuck it it's worth it people are getting hurt we're doing it right maybe i'll give you guys two minutes i'll give you guys two minutes to get out two minutes to get far away like Very everybody says that. their sweet goodbyes and there's a beat everybody's just kind of sitting there you know thinking and then it's like boop <laughs> everybody's gotta get out <laughs> i don't know oh just that's a, a fabulous idea just a no, thought per- i love that that's perfect all right that's we'll perfect <laughs> now Kyle. yes all right so i think it would be probably a crime against humanity for our knockback listeners not to end with a couple of of dad jokes perfect i have i have a really great dad joke resource i don't want to give it away but the other dad jokes are shit compared to this one resource I finally found online, which is amazing. It's amazing. These jokes make, they're probably so bad because you know my taste in jokes. But to me, they make me laugh out loud. But first, I was All very right, excited, Carl, to bring back the lightning round. Now, there's a, oh, new, okay. there's a new twist now, okay? This is called lightning round two versus mode. Okay, so basically what it is is very simple. I'm going to give you 10 questions based on our topic. So today it's based on Metroid. Forgive if there's some Super Metroid ones in here because we didn't know we were going to say we were going to section it off, but that's okay. They're just general Metroid questions. And but here's the catch. I already picked my answers to each to each of the 10. So at the end, we'll compare how I answered to how you answered and see how much we were on the same page with the answers. How's that sound? That sounds wonderful. Okay, so Kyle. Here we go. Lightning round. We have one minute. That's more than enough time. Lightning round two versus mode. Here we go. Metroid or Super Metroid? Metroid. Ridley or Kraid? Ridley. Morph Ball or Screw Attack? Screw Attack. The Beam Gun or Missile? Missile. Ice Beam or Wave Beam? Ooh. Ice Beam. That's correct. (laughs) <laughs> Game Boy or Game Boy Advance? Oh, Game Boy Advance. Alien or Aliens? Oh, man. Alien. Singular. Okay. Samus or Ripley? Oh, Ripley. Please. Oh, good choice. Please. 8-bit or 16-bit? 8-bit. Okay. And last one, Kyle. Mother Brain or Alien Queen? Alien Queen, just because Mother Brain's always going to be connected to that fucking cartoon. <laughs> all right let's see how we answered these i got okay we said we were good there you said ice beam you said game boy advance okay we got i got i said aliens you said alien so we're off on that one samus or ripley eight bit or 16 bit mother brain yep the only one we got the only one we were a part on was aliens or alien we were oh, nine. interesting. See, we I were nine for, for ten. I thought for wow. Yeah. So you like aliens? I mean, that's a fine choice. I love that movie you know. so much. Sweethearts. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do a knockback on that too. I'm sure both of those. Oh, of course, definitely, definitely. Oh, nine for ten though, Colin. In, in our first lightning round versus mode, that is not bad. 
That is not bad. Not bad at all. Fucking, oh my God, Alien's so good. So horrifying. Just that oh, whole so universe. Scary. Oh, did you see that? I retweeted it. There was a Waylon Utani uh, logo, but it was like in gay pride colors. No. That someone made. And no. you know, because it's gay pride month and all the businesses are putting up their Twitter accounts or whatever. Like, <laughs> so someone made that logo and the get with the gay pride colors, which I think is fucking hilarious. That's amazing. Like, I don't think a lot of people understood it because it didn't get retweeted that many times. Oh, I got to look at this. When was this today? No, no, no. This was like probably last week. It'll be on my Twitter. Feed oh, somewhere. last week. All right. Well, you know, dude, I was busy, like probably like getting likes from Mark Hamill and uh, Kevin Smith and everybody. So, dude, I, I was just busy You're like, <laughs> with my. Yeah, no, no big dude. No big, no deal, big dude. deal, dude. Like. Maybe maybe I'll catch that next time. I saw you. How many how many likes now have you gotten from Mark Hamill? Uh, I'm not exactly sure. Eight, I believe. <laughs> oh my God, you're eight. counting them. No. Oh my. Something God. like eight. Something like exactly eight. <laughs> <laughs> and three from That's Kevin cool, Smith. Dude. He, not that I'm counting. He knows who you are. Those guys know who you, they must know who you are. Who? You know. That's. Per- Mark Hamill, like if he's liking you eight times. Well, you know what's funny about this, Kyle? I don't, don't know if I ever told you this. And I told Helene this the other day. I had never told her this. I worked for Mark Hamill once, and I, which I forgot about. So a long time ago, I was struggling for work. This was like 2007 or something. A, friend, a producer friend of mine had a project, and he knew I was just freelancing at the time. I didn't have full-time work. And he said, hey, I got this visual development thing for a pilot. You know, it's just it's this preschool cartoon about puppies do you want to do some character? I'll send you a script. You can't, you know, you sign the NDA. Do you want to do some character designs? And I, he was like, it pays this. And I, it must've been a low rate. And I was like, no, not really. I don't want to do this. And he was like, he was like, all right, well, I'll tell Mark Hamill. You're not interested <laughs> in the email. Right. And I was like, oh no, it's cool. Like, yeah, I got this dude. Like, I, or I said something like I didn't have time. And I was like, oh no, I have plenty of time. Like, you know, I saw like such an asshole, but when I found out it was Mark Hamill, I had to do it. So a long time ago, I did drawings from Mark Hamill. Now, I don't think he remembers that. You know what I mean? I'm not even sure he ever knew my name because I was going through like another, I was doing, it was like a subcontract thing. Right, right, right. But isn't that interesting? And he was, I know he's a great dog lover. So it makes sense that he was doing an animated pilot about dogs. But I actually did do some work from Mark Hamill back in the day, which I had forgotten about. And And uh, little do you know that he has all of that art on his wall. (laughs) And he's been thinking and pining over you for all these years. Helene's like, how long does it take you to write, think of these things to write back to Mark Hamill? I'm like, well, this one took me like 45 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) It's totally not worth it, but it is so worth it. It's so worth it, dude. All right, my friend. Now we've been going for a long time. I know we're tired. We got to go out on on a dad joke. Let's do it. Okay. So my wife is really mad at the fact that I have no sense of direction. So I packed up my stuff and write. (laughs) It took me a few minutes to get this one. Do you get it? Yes, I do get it. It's awful. It's terrible. Is this from the source? Is this from the source? This is from the source. This is from the source. All right. Yeah, you're in. This is what we have to look forward to, I guess. You're in for it. You're totally in for it. All right. I'll give you one more. Oh, yeah. Please give me one more. Please Please. give me one more. Yeah. yeah. Let's see. Um... All right. What's the best part about living in Switzerland? I don't know. I don't know, but the flag is a big plus. (laughs) (laughs) I always loved I always loved their flag, too, because it's not the proper dimension. You know, it's like a small square. 
Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I always loved them in Nepal because they always had these weird shaped flags. That was a good one. I liked that. One. You liked all right. That was Look, one. that one gets the thumbs up from Carl. Yeah. Well, my well, friend, Dave, we're back. That's Metroid. We're back. We are back. Kind of. Kind of. Kind of. We're half because. We're half back because we're going to do these few episodes remotely and then we're going to get into wave nine proper in July, which will be 10 new episodes. But it's really no different to you guys because you're just going to get a new episode every week. So what the hell do you care? <laughs> Remember, you can support our show on Patreon, patreon.com slash Collins last stand. That will allow you to get every episode of our show a week early and ad free. It also allows you to submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts and ideas to our show, exclusive podcasts and more. You can also buy merch. This is actually the first time we've done an episode since merch has been available. I made a tiny URL. It is for sacred symbols, but it leads you to all of the same stuff. Tinyurl.com slash sacred shirts. You can get your knockback shirt there. It Ooh. is our second best selling shirt. It is behind sacred symbols. It is. Oh, sacred it symbols. Is. Thorn in my sockers. <laughs> <laughs> it's all your designs anyway. What do you care? That's true. So Dagan. Let's get the hell out of here. All right. Everyone out there, thank you so much for your love, your kindness, support. Appreciate you. We'll see you next time for more Knockback. Goodbye. Knockback is a product of and a registered trademark of Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded in Santa Monica, California and the Philadelphia suburbs of Pennsylvania, USA. The show is produced by me, Colin Moriarty, and was conceived of by myself and Dagan Moriarty, who is also my co-host. You can find me on Twitter at NoTaxation and on Instagram at CLS Moriarty. Dagan is on Twitter at Dagan1973 and on Instagram at DaganLikesToDraw. Knockback is edited by Dustin Furman. Any snail mail can be sent to our P.O. Box, P.O. Box 1233, Santa Monica, California, 90406. As you know, all things Collins Last Stand, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and we are eternally grateful for your kindness, generosity, and fandom. Carlos Algaret, C.J. Anderson, Morgan Ashley, Taylor Barkley, Sean Battershaw, Martin Beck, Eric Bishop, Mark Boggio, Eli Bosford, Michael Josiah Borison, Barrett Boswell, Daniel Boyer, Spencer Brand, Miguel Brewer, Lennon Brixie, Jimmy Brown, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Andrew Burkhart, Dylan Burns, Chris Buston, Alex Cabrera, Brian Cacciatolo, Tom Cargill, Patrick Carper, William O'Carroll, Ryan Caulfield, Brian Chan, Travis Chandler, Sean Chandler, David Chestnut, Simon Conception Jr., Brad Cooley, Gio Corsi, Nick Cummings, Daniel D'Amour, Colin Davenport, Mitchell Durkash, Zachary Douglas, Knight Draft, David Ellis, Martha Emery, Joe Finelli, Eric Finkenbeiner, Fodios Frangos, Michael Gallier, Chris Galvin, Connor Gashian, Alex Gates, Michael Gates, Salem Ghanem El Ghanem, Daniel Glassford, Tyler Goodwin, Josh Gravelick, Miranda Grubba, Tyler Harris, Kyle Hagel, Wyatt Henry, Asa Haas, Azan Isa El Ricey, Josh Yeager, John Jameson, Jimmy Jolicure, Joshua Jonathan, Greg Julius, Anton Kay, Jeremy Key, Antti Kinnanen, James Kinslow III, Ryan R. Kittredge, Jackson Lassiqua, Joe Lawson, Don Q. Lee, Patrick Leslie, Dustin Lewis, Keith A. Lewis, Chad Lewis, Lou and Ray Loper, Colin Love, Josh M, Ryan T. Mandel, Peter Mark, Michael Martinez, Sean Mason, Zachariah McAdoo, John McCarthy, Joe McPartlin, Andrew Mendoza, Christopher Middling, Alex Moans, Betty Ann Moriarty, Ryan Murdoch, Adam Nix, Donnie Nolan, George A. Nunez, Brian Ott, Jorge Palomino, Daniel Parsons, Brendan Peavy, Marius S. Peterson, Gerald Pennington, Enrique Perez, Nicholas Perfect, James Perone, Jason Pettit, Jeff Pollard, Louis Powell, Lawrence F. Prokop, Andrew Ramos, Ryan Reeves, Michael Renner, Peter Reynolds, Shane Rayum, Jonathan Rice, Mark Richardson, Toby D. Riemenschneider, 
Austin Riley, Petro Rose, A.G. Rowe, John Scholes, Michael Shanholtz, Brandon Sharkey, Toby Schutman, Joshua Smallwood, Daniel Streicharsk, John Tabanillo, Ahmad Tamar, Ben Thompson, Carl Tolman, Alan Trembley, Jacob Turnboff, Phil Van Rall, Raymond Vargas, Michael Vecchio, Justin Wagaman, Oakley Waldron, Isaac Wastman, Damon Weathers, Mike Wayan, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zuniga, Casual Misfits Gaming, Supershot ST, Homeworld Hub, Throw7, Infinite, Organic Produce, Madmock Media, Fabian, Mubarak, Richter86, Hugo's Desk, Andrew, Ian, Chris, Donk 2015, and Gavin.